it is so critical to balance out compliance without stunting the business to become compliant and to operate and to keep scaling and growing. And so I do sincerely hope that our governments do not stop the innovation of our generations out there that are building software solutions to serve the world. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armin will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm here with Daniel Kiven, the VP of Finance at Paddle. We are going to have a fantastic discussion. So let's start by asking Daniel to, if you could, please tell us a little bit about yourself. What's the story behind you joining Paddle and whatever that you think interests the community here on the SaaS world? Hi, Armand. Thank you for having me on. It's super exciting to be here. I'm Danielle. I call myself Dutch-ish because I was born in the Netherlands, but I've lived everywhere the most except for here. So I grew up in Aruba. I've worked with corporate industries and hospitality industry like the Marriott's and Hyatt's for about 10 years. Before I moved over to Europe, I heard a myth that people work eight hours here. It is not true. So I wanted to have a better work-life balance. I moved over into the tech space about seven years ago. So I initially started at Booking.com, where I've had seven different positions, and we focused on scalability and finance. And then moved over to MessageBird.com, where we build on the entire finance operation globally. And now I'm at Paddle.com. And I'm actually, it's not because they're my employer, but I am most excited about Paddle.com because it is actually a finance product. And so not only do we get to do the accounting stuff and the finance stuff, compliance stuff, but we actually work very closely to our tech and a product and engineering team to make sure that compliance is upfront and our first priority as a business and a company. And that's what we sell, right? So that's a little bit about me. Paddle.com is an end-to-end platform for software providers. So in principle, we want to enable software providers or founders to focus on what they're building and what they're passionate about. And we want to do all of the, I'm going to call it dirty work (laughs) or heavy lifting when it comes to finance and compliance. So basically we do an end-to-end process and we're actually the only platform that offers this. So everybody else does things in a piecemeal approach. Paddle gives you your invoicing, your billing, your payments, your customer management inquiries on payments. We answer your chargebacks for you. We take the fraud risk for you and the payment providers. We also manage, and this is the most important value add, is the tax component. We don't only manage your taxes, we take full ownership and responsibility of it. 
So I think Paddle is quite unique in what we offer as a company. Fantastic. No, this kind of all-in-one definitely for many companies is very valuable because it just helps them to focus on the core business that they have so they can move faster and grow faster. I can share with you kind of my experience as a technology background kind of founder, and I have done it four times so far. This is my fourth company. So as you go through this kind of experience, the guy starting his own first software company at the age of 18, first year in university, and then growing to the next one at Windows time, and then going to the web time and XML time, and then coming to now cloud time and being in four different stages of technology, but also aging and adding more gray hair. And as you really experience more, I could say that when I looked at my previous company at one point and I asked myself, what is the biggest innovation that we have ever had that was so impactful for the business to grow it, to really become a good size business? It was not actually the technology. It was not actually the architecture. It was not like that kind of big feature that we have created and engineering minds behind it. It was actually what it was. It was building the right contract, building the right kind of financial terms around the offering, the product. And that made the company a better company, the right business, a kind of robust business. Because by just looking at it from financial aspect, you could see that how it impacts your financial model. If you choose this way, versus the other way that you are really selling your product, packaging your product. How does it impact your churn? How does it impact the cash? How does it impact the long-term, the lifetime value of your customer? All of that was really from... And then when I started this company that I'm right now, guess what I did? The very first thing I did I just made sure I have a CFO with me all the time looking at everything I do so I'm not taking me years to get to the point that I should have started day one. <laughs> so that happens when you gain your experience, then you always couple yourself with a very financial savvy talent to give you advice and correct you on that front and not just let you focus on the product side or whatever. So tell us a little bit about your experience, your comment. Would you agree or how do you think about that? I think this is, for me, it's enjoyable to hear. I think it's logical to me that finance is an afterthought for any founder that starts building something because most great companies are built by a founder who has identified a need or has a passion to fix something in the market. And that's what kind of starts their company, right? And often finance is an afterthought. However, it's a way too late generally is when they realize, oh, I might have an issue. And then I think bringing in a finance person too late into the business to go back and correct some of these mistakes can be mistakenly painful. It can always be done. That's the reason why us finance folks in the tech space will keep on going, because I do think it requires a certain caliber to walk into a company and understand what's happening, because often products are built in a way that it's only focused on product, not on data, how the data is going to flow, not thinking there has to be an accuracy in reporting. 
What should my data infrastructure look like? Why is this even important? How does this make me compliant or not compliant? What are the possible risks if I'm not compliant? And also the guy that always gets all of us, taxes, <laughs> they will find you. And I think often these things are an afterthought, or I think initially, as you mentioned, as an 18 year old founder, you don't think about having to pay taxes or having to submit financial statements. And these are lessons that can be very challenging to learn. And I think it's interesting because that's exactly how Paddle started. Our founder was 17 years old when he had already been dabbling in the software space and he found the biggest bottleneck to be tax and compliance. And so Paddle was his solution for that space. And I think that's interesting to see how we've grown since then and how we continue to grow as well. Fantastic. And then I can see even in some other cases that I have seen, for example, founders at the very end, they have done all of this hard work, maybe 10, 15 years of their best years of life have been in that company. And after 10 years, maybe they are now exiting and selling. And again, they have worked like crazy during those years. And then just because they didn't pay attention to some of these things, then at the end, the exit might be totally different story because now they realize that how not thinking about the tax part of the business when especially in the US when you are selling to 50 different states and then you have to really think through all of that when you have worked on the IP side and then you can get some kind of maybe advantages on that that you never understood how it works maybe as a founder on your personal side you never understood how it works as a founder of a startup. There are tons of things that, again, financially is impacting you and you can ignore it. And after 10 years, then you can see that it's impacting you in a very kind of different way. Having said that, if I'm a founder, I'm a SaaS company founder, I start the company today and I wanted to build a CRM, just as an example. And this CRM is going to work for this particular segment of the market. Now, from your perspective, what are the best course of actions that make sense, is rational, you know, it's not like overacting, it's not like ignoring completely. What are the actions that I need to take as soon as maybe I start the company or as soon as my ARR and revenue gets to $1 million, either way. You may say not that much when you start, but as soon as you get to this threshold, then think about these things. Or you may say, no, just at the start, you need to think about these five things, 10 things. What would be your advice to that kind of founder? I think you gave the advice before you asked me the question, hire a financial person. <laughs> In your case, it was a CFO. I think if you're starting as a smaller company, provided you have any person with a bit of financial knowledge behind you, is going to be helpful. And I think it depends on the size of company you're building, it might not even be that you need somebody full time. You can actually get consults and you can get advice and you can get people coming in as contractors even to help you set up your business right. I think my biggest advice would be even before you start pulling in the million, make sure that you know how you're going to monetize. Make sure that you also know how to be compliant and which markets you're entering. I think the first recommendation would be, who are you selling to? Identify the market where you want to be. Instead of saying, if you're going to do it on your own, don't go global in one go unless you have a partner to do that with. 
So I think you have to be mindful of the compliance, the legislation, the registrations that you need to put in place. So I would definitely recommend hiring a financial professional. And again, it depends as to your budget, because of course you don't want to go through, if you can be bootstrapped, that's the best way to go, right? So you don't want to spend your entire cash on hiring a CFO. It doesn't have to be a CFO and you don't have to hire one full time. But I think even you yourself shared from your experience today, if you can go back, your first hire might still be, and if you can't afford it, will be a financial person. They are going to be a pain in your butt, but they're going to keep you right and they're going to help you scale and grow faster than anyone else that you can bring along on your journey, if you have the right person as well. You're absolutely right. And and just to be accurate, in my case as well, exactly that person was more kind of part-time I didn't need a full-time CFO day one, but I needed his advice. And that CFO advisor role, as you say, can be a part-time. And it was not actually painful to work with him. He was really good and he is really good at still working with me. He knows a lot of jokes. So it's always good to see him and talk with him. Just, you know, <laughs> always fun and speaking with him. So finance and personality are a very unique accommodation skill to have. Yes, it does exist. <laughs> <laughs> so with regard to the other aspect maybe is, again, I have been there and I admit I made too many mistakes. And one of my mistakes was, again, being that kind of very, when I started my first and maybe even the second company I started, I barely could really understand the value of finance and differentiate it from just simple accounting and other practices, right? So there's one aspect of it that is accounting and just you do the booking. And I think that's easy to understand for most people that if you have a business, you have to do some certain kind of accounting and booking. That's well understood, I think. But then there's the tax aspect of it that, okay, it's a little bit more advanced, but many people may learn it that just because you have the booking accounting doesn't mean that you have paid enough attention to the taxing part as well and you are smart about it and then even if you get it it's still it's another step to move forward and understand the finance part of it right so it has nothing to do with that booking accounting tax that much it's really different aspect that helps you to create the vision that is also verified and it's smart on the finance part, not just you sit down with the marketing and sales and you create a product that has product market fit. And there is enough discussion everywhere you go that if you're a founder, you're a SaaS company, you need to have a product market fit. And still, you can have a product market fit and then the product and the business doesn't succeed. So just because your product has a product market fit does not guarantee that you have a viable financial model, right? So there are many other parameters involved in order to really make it work. And the finance part and the operating plan that you create for your company and the financial kind of perspective that you gain, it's just forward-looking visionary view that you get from the right financial kind of brain on your side totally different and totally separated from what you do every day on the booking and tax and everything else. Would love to hear your comment. You have way more experience on that than I have. And it's good to hear someone like you. What do you think about that? I fully agree. I think having been in a tech space for a while now, 
I think accounting is such a critical component, yet so undervalued by product people, by the company, by the software companies. But to your point, this is something that in essence should be simple, should be basic, and it should be done. Next to that, indeed, you have taxes, which actually we often group together or lump together with finance and accounting, but it's a completely different professional skill set. And it's completely, it operates in a different space, different people, different skill sets. And the one thing that I love about taxes is sometimes they just do not make sense. And especially working in the tech space with product and engineering and tax is one of our key products and angles that we sell as, as a company at Paddle. The way I tell my engineering team why they need to have these conversations with tax and with finance is I try to explain them that engineering and product are some of the more logical and most logical people you will work with, but there is no logic to tax. Countries are not as logical as engineers. That's one side of it. They will make tax work differently on different products. Next to that, especially when you talk about the SaaS industry, most countries are not 100% sure yet how they want to treat it, if they're going to tax it, if they're not going to tax it. I mean, you mentioned, for example, in the United States, you're talking about different legislation across different states. Some software pieces are considered, I'll give you an example, if you take some of these platforms that we're placing these conference calls on, some of them will be telecom in some states, some of them are software. I think there's a massive distinction between state to state, and that's just one country, which is the US, which is also massive. And if you expand that view to global, There are countries that will tax your software if you're selling in-country, but not if you're selling international to your country. So like, there's so many different tax rules that will come into play that for product engineering to self-build these elements, it might cost a lot of financial and tax expertise in addition to your resources that might be better spent perfecting your product. So I think that those are some considerations to take that are super interesting as to what finance can add to the team. To your point, I think a strong finance team or a finance person can make such a difference in success or failure. If you have a good product that you've built and it is a good product and market fit that you've encountered, a financial person can take a step back and actually identify even more opportunity, also more risk, but then take that forward. I think especially if you look in this economic climate right now, everything's so uncertain. Cash has gotten more expensive. And I think especially in software companies, we are used to dealing with cash burn or a cash run rate to make sure that we're going to make it or, you know, we bootstrap. And I think right now it is even more critical than ever to have the right finance strategy in place to determine when are we going to invest? Because I think not investing in your companies is not an option. How are you going to invest? What is the ROI you're trying to make to move forward? Because I do think that we need to keep moving as businesses in this climate. We just have to move more cautiously, more strategically, and a good, strong finance partner can identify these opportunities, and it will be the difference between making and breaking. Now, on the related but different topic, we are living in this SaaS world, and the revenue model for a SaaS company, as it comes from the name, software as a service, is subscription-based. Right, So you have these subscriptions coming, and then the way you treat the subscriptions might be different than you treat, for example, software when you sell it perpetually. 
and then in old days that you were buying just the software and you were getting the software like you are buying a TV and then you have it and then if you want you can pay some amount of money to maintain it like your TV if the repair is free for three years or something like that. But it's not that world anymore. It's more like you are paying for subscribing to use the software. Does it add to the complexity of these kind of rules and everything that now we as software founders need to know versus 10 years ago that we did not have this subscription model and mostly it was more like, or it's actually making it easier. How does it impact that part of the equation? Absolutely. I think you bring forward a very valid point. I think subscription is definitely a way to go. It's almost like making money while you sleep kind of model, right? In an ideal world. I do agree or I support the point of view that it does add complexity to compliance. And the reason why, if you take a step back and think through what are the fundamentals that any company needs, you need a payment provider. So you need to be able to collect and and process cash. You need to be able to receive or send invoices. If you're going to do subscriptions, you need to be able to maintain that and maintain a way to do charge recurring subscriptions. And then you have all of the other compliance elements like tax and finance and everything else we just spoke about. Paddle as a business has really focused on being the expert in many of these fields. And I can share the challenges or actually the market angles that we deal with being in this space. For example, for invoicing, maintaining the taxable categories continually as tax changes. The majority of countries introduce changes all at the same time, which is going to be the 1st of January of every year. So through the year, we are constantly monitoring the tax landscape to see any legislation changes. If you go over and think about your payments provider, there are also payment providers that actually the payment space is changing continually. Like India is changing their laws. And even if you have a subscription, now you have to fulfill a different set of compliance requests to be able to keep running these subscriptions there. So then you have to, first of all, monitor your tax changes, then your payment changes. Now, if you're dealing with subscriptions, there are countries now that are introducing local legislation around subscriptions. So if you're going to keep running your subscriptions, which you should, because I think it's a great model, especially for the software business, You also have to face or understand the complexity of how this operates globally. Like Germany is, for example, introducing legislation around subscription that will impede an infinite rerun of subscriptions or that will require it to be easier to cancel a subscription instead of hiding that button somewhere in your page. So I think that is definitely the way to go for the software industry. I also do think that we shouldn't underestimate that countries as a whole are getting more innovative around how to protect customers from some of these things and maintaining compliance to do business globally is becoming more challenging. Fascinating. (laughs) Those are really topics that when you're building this software business, you may not think about it, but actually it's impacting you. And especially the point you mentioned about Germany making it or trying to put some rules for these software companies and SaaS companies to make it more obvious that if I want to cancel my account, how should I do that? And uh, recently I had an experience, first-hand experience myself, very well-known company, but making it so hard to really find that button, not to cancel it. I just wanted to change the plan from more expensive plan to less expensive plan. And all of the places I went, it was more upgrading right then. Hey, I wanted to downgrade. I don't need it anymore. I used it for a year and now I don't need that kind of 
storage or something. So hard. Honestly, it took me. Finally, I found a discussion in a Reddit that somebody <laughs> just disclosed. This is where I learned. Just one single teeny tiny, and it was more complex kind of Google search. It was not a two-minute search. So you're right. And I can resonate with that as a consumer, as a user, that why it should be like that. I mean, it should be the same way that I downgrade, upgrade, more more transparent. So I can see it. I can see the rationale behind you know some of these, and I can see that's the role of really the real role of any good government to really protect users in that way. So I'm all for it. But at the same time, these are more advanced age of SaaS companies. When you start something at the very beginning, everything needs to just get started. Internet the same, SaaS is the same. And you have to just get it started and you're not really having all of this sophisticated. But as we are aging and getting better and we are getting into more sophisticated system, more advanced systems, we should accept that aspect of it, that now it's not as kind of, I would say, it's a more, you know, more regulations, more rules to really get into. And that would be the trend. So if we had this discussion five years from now, most likely you had many more examples to bring up and say, now we have these kind of things. And if you had this discussion five or 10 years ago, probably way less compliances and rules and regulations. I think five years ago, everybody just created a subscribe and never exit option. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But I do think as software is growing and becoming more and more known to governments, to your point, I do expect that we will start seeing indeed a way more regulated environment to operate in. So in part, I think that's great. Like to your point, protecting the consumer The other side of it is that I sincerely hope it doesn't hamper innovation. I think as a finance professional in a tax space, it is so critical to balance out compliance without stunting the business to become compliant and to operate and to keep scaling and growing. And so I do sincerely hope that our governments around the world do not stop the innovation of our generations out there that are building software solutions to serve the world, basically. Yeah, absolutely. There are two sides of it, right? So software is becoming more dominant in our life, right? 20 years ago, 20, just not that long. I mean, 20 years ago, I can't think of that was around the time I started my previous business. So when I was thinking about, you know, I get up in the morning and how much exposure I have to software until I come back at night. And Today, how much exposure I have to software when I get up in the morning until at night, I'm done for the day. Not even comparable, right? So now your car runs on software. If software is buggy, your car is not going to function. Your cell phone that did not exist in this way, the smartphone is totally different software in your hand. That was not the case. It was just 20 years ago, you had a phone for just phone call. Now you have a phone that the only thing you don't do with it is phone. You never use it as a phone. I don't use it. I don't know what was the last time I called someone on the phone. Even if I called someone, it was on FaceTime. It was more on WhatsApp. It was more a video call rather than just a regular phone. So honestly, software is now everywhere. It's way more, even in 20 years, that is not a long, long time. 
even 10 years, if you think about it, every 10 years, it's just software getting more dominant. Now you run even your personal business. I mean, even, even honestly, your TV is now running on software, any device you are running. And that is the explosion of software that is the positive side of it for software companies because there's way more opportunities 10 years from now hopefully we are going to see metaverse and many other things and web3 in action and many other things in action and those are even expanding way more suffering to the life of every minute of us and we are happy about it it's a better more convenient life as a result of all of those but at the same time that means that now Nobody can afford not paying attention to the details because it impacts everybody in the world. It's not like before. It was just 5% of my experience for the whole day. Now it's 95% of everything we experience. Hospitals are running on software. Robotic surgery is becoming now thing that, you know, more common. So anything, everywhere, even for a checkup, I go, I see software. I go drive the car, I see software. I use my phone, I see software. We are talking now, we see software, meeting, running the company. You don't go to a physical conference room anymore. That's very much old fashioned. Now, even if you are at the same place, still we go to Zoom and meet with each other because just because one of the parties is not in the company. So we have to go over Zoom. That is 99% of the cases. So definitely more software, that means more compliance, more rules, more things to know, that is the trend as we move forward. I would like to ask you also if you could share with us a particular book or maybe some books, blog posts, something that, you know, you have seen a long-lasting positive impact in what you do as a result of reading it. The magic about books are that somebody, you know, has spent a lifetime to learn the lesson and then brings all of that into some pages that we can read and absorb and learn very quickly. And if it resonates with us, will it stay with us for a lifetime? What is your choice of that particular you know, book and lessons you have learned? I actually have two that definitely rank very highly on my list. One of them, well, I'm guessing both might be familiar to you, but one of them is definitely going to be familiar to you, which is the 80-20 principle from Richard Cog. To me, I think especially in in the tech industries, often before you hire or before you automate or before you scale, the work actually 10Xs. And so there will be many moments during your career or during your employment, I would say even in a tech company, where you are so overloaded with work that sometimes you don't even know what to start on. Or sometimes you're just like, it's too much, so I'll do nothing at all. (laughs) And so reading the 80-20 focus has been so instrumental for me to constantly take a step back and recalibrate what is the 20. What is the 20 that will move that needle fastest, best, and also impact the current workload? So I always, whenever things get really out of control, I would say in terms of how much we need to do, is I take a step back, what is the 20? And I think this is also something that I try to teach my team members. Always try to take a step back. You don't have to do 100, just find the 20. And then you'll find everything else will solve itself and will come to, to light when needed. The other book I genuinely love is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Leadership from Stephen Covey. I've read it very, very early in my career. 
And I think even in this conversation, talking to you about, hey, what should founders think about? The resounding principle in my head is beginning with the end in mind, making that blueprint, where am I going to be? And then building from the future backwards to what you need to do, right? So I think for me, just as a leader, it has shaped how I lead my team, my principles that I believe in, but also how I operate in any company that I walk in. I just look towards the future. How big are we going to be? How are we going to scale? What is the size and what is the market share that we look to have? And then I built everything backwards into how can this be flexible? How can this scale? How can this meet the criteria for today? Those 10 customers and then tomorrow the 10 million customers. In some instances, this is not possible. However, when it is possible, getting your foundations right as a company is so critical. One of the companies I worked at had been IPO'd already for an X amount of years before the compliance rules came in. The difficulty of going back and changing your original build and your foundations in a software or tech company is so challenging. So getting it right, right out the gate might not be your top priority, but it is very good for you to start thinking, what is your end goal and what are the basic principles that you need to get right as soon as you're out the gate? Fantastic. And, and you're right. The good thing about habit versus just setting goals is that if your habit supports those goals, it's much easier to achieve the goals. But if there is no that kind of habit as the organization or as leaders in the organizations that have, it just makes it sometimes impossible and so difficult to accomplish the goal. And by just defining and setting the goal, if there are no fundamental habits that really support that, it just makes it sometimes not as easy to accomplish. So definitely, that's a valid point to have. And thank you very much, Daniel, for the discussion. I enjoyed it. Hopefully, the audience would enjoy it as much as I did. And we look forward to having these discussions again in the future. And we wish you all the best. Thank you. It's nice meeting you. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.